if you would please, and we'll open them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. And we're continuing in our study of the greatest sermon that was ever preached. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in which he began to teach his disciples about the very stringent requirements of life in his kingdom. And I hope as we study this each week that you don't stop with just the few short verses that we're reading here, but you'll consider the whole sermon, you'll read through the whole sermon comprehensively and see that all of this fits together. There is a progression in this sermon. There are principles that are laid down here in the very beginning that will be applied in the later verses as we study them. And this is the fourth week in the beginning of this sermon uh, that we're discussing. It's commonly called the Beatitudes. This portion of the message of Jesus is called the Beatitudes. And Beatitude simply means happiness, means bliss. It means to be in a state of being, of being happy. And what Jesus has said so far here really doesn't sound much like happiness at all. Jesus was telling the people about life in his kingdom. And when he began to tell them about how they could be happy, it wasn't at all what they expected. If if you were going to talk to the Jews about a kingdom, if you were going to speak to them about happiness, you would have to start with the problem they're facing right then. And that is, they were under Roman occupation. For centuries, there had been people who had occupied their land, and they were oppressed. And so when you began to talk about them, about the kingdom, they knew that they had been promised this land by the one true God, and to live physically in a kingdom, to them must mean that they had to be physically free, that they had to be autonomous, that there would be no one ruling over them. But when Jesus began to speak to them about the kingdom, it wasn't what they expected because he wasn't talking about military might. There was nothing here about covert operations. It doesn't say anything about delta forces destroying their enemies. But what Jesus is speaking of is an everlasting kingdom of righteousness. And he tells the people that in order to live in this kingdom, they must have forgiveness of their sins And only then can they live in true righteousness in the kingdom of God. Now today we're going to look into the fourth beatitude. And this is specifically a beatitude about righteousness. It's the natural progression of the and the conclusion of the first three beatitudes that we've talked about in the past few weeks. So we'll begin reading with verse number one. And we'll see the first three Beatitudes, then we'll look at this fourth one that is about righteousness. Let's turn, uh, stand please if you would, and, and uh, look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse number 1. We'll read down through verse number, number 6. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Our Heavenly Father, as we look into your word today, we just ask you, Lord, to open up our hearts to this message about righteousness and help us to understand that we must have this before we'll ever see the kingdom of God. Living in your kingdom means living in righteousness, and help us, Lord, to see that as we talk about this subject today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
What does it mean to be righteous? Righteous or righteousness is a word that I use in almost every sermon, if not in every sermon. I don't even know how I could preach a message unless I mention this word righteousness. Righteousness is really the central theme of the Bible. Now, you may say that the central theme of the Bible is Jesus, and I would certainly agree with that statement. When we consider Jesus, we have to consider what Jesus is all about. What are we talking about when we speak of Jesus? The reason that we speak of Jesus is because of this idea of righteousness. And the book of Job, which nearly everyone agrees is the oldest book of the Bible, Job asked a burning question. He said, how shall a man be just with God? And interestingly, Job was written before the law was given. And so Job asked that question, how can a man be just with God? In other words, how can a man be right with God? And that's basically what righteousness is. It's how we can be right with God. And so when I say that the central theme of the Bible is righteousness, and you say the central theme is Jesus, we're actually talking about the same thing. Because Jesus is the way that man becomes righteous with God. Now, let's talk about that today, what Jesus means when he says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Well, we have to begin by looking at the problem of righteousness. Job's question is an indication that there's something wrong. Man is not just with God. Man has to be made right with God. Now, it's a problem that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam disobeyed God and he ate of that forbidden fruit, the fruit that God said he should not eat of. And when Adam ate of that fruit, he fell from a state in which he was right with God. Before he was innocent, he had no sin. But at that very moment that he ate of this fruit, he lost his innocence. And so Adam was no longer right with God. Now the problem is that Adam's sin has been passed to the entire human race. Now, not that we're all literally guilty of eating forbidden fruit, but we all are all like Adam in our nature. All of us are disobedient to God. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, he said, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, that would be Adam, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Now, that means that there is no person who is born into the world who's right with God. We must have righteousness, the righteousness of God restored as it was in Adam in the state before he fell. And so we have a problem then of righteousness. Now, first of all, we have a problem because we need it for our salvation. We must have righteousness for salvation. And these first few Beatitudes, they're given to us to show us that we have a need. We must see here that we are bankrupt spiritually. That's what it means when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He means that we recognize that we have no righteousness and we have no means in which we can achieve it on our own. And because we have no righteousness, we begin to mourn about that. We sorrow because of the sin that's in our life, because of that lost condition. We realize that there is no sufficiency in ourselves that produces us in us a, the equality of being a meek person because we realize we have no one that we can look to but Jesus Christ. We can't look to ourselves. And so that causes us then to come to this beatitude where we hunger and thirst after righteousness and Jesus promises us if we have that desire, then the need will be met. 
Righteousness is required for salvation. I mean that you can't, you can't be saved, you can't be right with God without righteousness. Now, the problem is that most people are deceived about this. They're deceived about how you actually can become right with God. And if we can become right by God, with God, with the keeping of commandments, if we can do this in our own effort, we really don't need Jesus. We don't need Jesus to do what we can do for ourselves. And so anyone who tries to obtain righteousness by their own good deeds has declared that Jesus is useless. If you've read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and if you really did get those first three Beatitudes, then you know it is impossible to do what Jesus says. You can't be right with God without him. And that's because God does not trade in your righteousness. Just like taking monopoly money to the bank. The bank's not going to take monopoly money, and neither will Jesus, neither will God take your righteousness. To be saved, you have to get his righteousness. And the only way that you can get that is by faith. So you have to trust the sacrifice that Christ has made for your sins, and you must give up on yourself then we also have to have righteousness for sanctification. Sanctification is our holiness. When we've been justified by faith, we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ, and what's happened to us then is a legal transaction. It's a declaration that we've been freed from the penalty of God's law. And I hope that you understand that when you break the law, when there's a penalty for breaking that law, you're going to be punished. The penalty has to be paid. And when we receive Christ in salvation, God declares that the penalty for our sins has been paid by the sacrifice of Christ. So we're no longer under that penalty, and then we're freed from the guilt of the penalty of sin. But that doesn't say anything about holiness. God is not only a just God, but God is also a holy God. And God cannot deal with anything that's not holy. And that's why sin can never be permitted into heaven. God's holiness will not allow sin there, and neither will God, will God's holiness allow him to have any dealings with us as long as we are unholy. Sanctification and justification occur at the same time, but they are not the same thing. Sanctification is the declaration of our holiness. And when we have received Christ as Savior, when we have become perfect in his righteousness, that's when we become holy. Now, there's an interesting thing here about the way that Matthew 5, verse 6 is constructed, because in the original language here, Jesus is saying that we must hunger and thirst after the righteousness, which means that it's not just any righteousness, but this is a particular righteousness. This is God's own righteousness, And it's a righteousness that's found only in Christ. And so you can see when I say that the main theme of the Bible is righteousness, and the same time the main theme of the Bible is Jesus, it's the righteousness of Christ that we have to hunger and thirst after. And that is a holy, perfect, and divine righteousness that can only be given by Christ. Now, the next thing we have to go on to is the pursuit of righteousness. The pursuit of is expressed in these terms, hungering and thirsting. This is not a casual desire. This is an intense burning desire. The truth is that you and I as Americans, we we really can't relate to the force of Christ's words 
and the effect that these words had on the original listeners. They knew something about hungering and thirsting. Now today, when I say I'm hungry, or you say you're hungry, you mean that, well, you haven't eaten for the last four hours. When we're hungry and the cupboard is bare, then there are five fast food joints on every corner. And so we get instant gratification. We get satisfaction for our hunger. When you're thirsty, all that you need to do is walk to the, to the sink and you give it a little twist and you can get a drink of water. And you can't even build a house in the United States without having running water. But it wasn't so in the Bible times because hunger and thirst was something that they lived with. There were famines in that country. You know, Americans really can't even experience a famine. Did you know that? If crops were to fail in the United States, the only way that we could experience a famine is if there's a worldwide famine. If our crops fail here, we have the ability to have them shipped in from anywhere in the world, and so we satisfy our hunger. But in the Bible times, famine meant death, and there was no immediate remedy from it. A drought meant death because there was no immediate remedy. So that's the backdrop of Jesus' statement. He means this, this hungering and thirsting in a sense of desperation. In other words, to hunger and thirst after righteousness is like a man who has no means of satisfying his hunger and thirst, and he seeks it in such desperation that this is the only thing that he can think about. Consumes every waking hour. There's not a minute that goes by that he doesn't realize just how helpless that he is. And so he gets up and he goes after this with all of his strength to obtain the very thing that will enable him to sustain life. Now, that's certainly not the picture that we have in modern-day Christianity. We're not really truly hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Rather, what we do is we try to inch as closely as we can to unrighteousness. If we're not openly sinning, then we're always flirting with it. And so a question that we need to ask ourselves is how much do we really want this righteousness? Do we really want this enough that we'll pursue it like a desperately hungry man who cannot be satisfied unless his belly is filled? And there's another interesting thing here that's inherent in this passage. We can't really see this in the English, but in the Greek, there's a way of stating this that you can't express in English. If I say that I'm hungry you know that what I mean is I want some food. If I tell my wife that I'm hungry, and she doesn't go to the freezer and take out all of the pork chops and all of the chicken and all of the fruit and go to the pantry and get all the vegetables and all the bread and all the bagels and all the ho-hos and all the Twinkies and all the popcorn and all the jello and all the cake mix, get it all out and fix that for me because I'm hungry. She only takes some of the food. But that's not the way that this verse is constructed. Rather, rather, Jesus is saying here that a person is blessed as one who hungers and thirsts after all righteousness. He wants every last bit of righteousness. He wants all there is. He wants all of Christ's righteousness. He doesn't want to be partially good and keep some of his sin, just a little bit of it. He wants all sin displaced with the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's expressed in verse number 48, if you'll just glance down there at it. It says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. And there, perfect means entire. It means to have it all. Perfection is attained when all evil is vanquished from the life of a believer. Now, do you find it hard to believe that, that Christ's kingdom does not tolerate sin? 
And do you find it hard to believe that you can't enter into Christ's kingdom half-heartedly? Do you find it hard to believe that Christ's kingdom cannot have the world in it? It doesn't because it's perfectly holy. And so Jesus says that the blessed person who is the one who is in constant pursuit of all holiness, all righteousness, and not just some righteousness. This is an amazing thing when you think about the way that the gospel is presented today. There are those who say that, that Christ makes no demand for repentance from sin, that Christ does not make any demands upon a believer for discipleship. I received a new gospel tract from a ministry that most of you would recognize if I gave the name. And in the entire gospel presentation of this tract, there is not one mention of repentance. And they tell, tell us that it's wrong to say to sinners that you have to trust Christ for your salvation, and then Christ must become the Lord of your life. I mean, that's not necessary for you to do that. But that is exactly the way that Jesus says you must enter into his kingdom. It can't be with sin. It can't be half-hearted. You cannot come into Christ's kingdom without yielding to the majesty, the power, and the sovereignty of Christ. It can't be that you come into his kingdom with this desire that you're going to hold on to something of this world. And that's what this Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's complete surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And you must keep pursuing it or you're not fit for Christ's kingdom. Now, here's the wonderful thing about it. And that is, if you have truly repented of your sins, if you have trusted in Christ, he's already working this in you. He's already working this desire for righteousness. And if you don't have a desire for righteousness, then you didn't get what you think you got. When you're saved by God's marvelous grace, he produces the desire in you. And what Christ is doing here, he's teaching us the outworking of it. And so he tells us to go on, pursue it with everything that we have. The book of Hebrews, it states it this way, let us go on to perfection. Let us become mature in the things of Christ. So we need to look at some of the ways that we pursue righteousness. First, we seek it through worship. We pursue righteousness through worship. Well, here's an amazing thing. There are some who think that they can worship God, and yet at the same time, they can ignore God's chief means of worship in this present age. Paul made a definitive statement in Ephesians chapter 5. He said, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, the writer says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. In 1 Timothy 3.15, the scripture says, the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Maybe you can't call me a Bible scholar, but I think that all of us can see that the church must be an important thing. The church must be an important place. Christ loved it. He gave himself for it. It's the pillar and the ground of the truth. We're told not to forsake it. And yet, there are many who neglect the church. Do you think that you could really obey Matthew 5, verse 6, and that you are really hungering and thirsting after righteousness? That you're doing this with all the strength that you can muster? That you're hungering and thirsting like a man who's in desperation? And then say, I'm too tired to go to church today. I've got something else to do on Sunday. There's something more important to me than going to church this week. 
How do you hunger and thirst after righteousness if you do not put yourself in the place where you can worship God? Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said, the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is the man who never misses an opportunity of being in those places where people seem to find this righteousness. Now, can you imagine a man who's in desperation, a man who's hungering and he's thirsting, and he's told that there is food in such and such a place, there is water there, you can have all that you want, you can have it all, and this man who's hungering and thirsting, he says, I don't feel like it today. I don't want it today. There's something else on my mind. Well, folks, the friend, friend, the the one who, who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is one who has nothing else on his mind but how he can obtain this. When poor blind Bartimaeus wanted to be healed, what did he do? He planted himself on a road outside of Jericho because why? Because Jesus was going to pass by that way. And so if we are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, we will be in the places where righteousness can be found. Now judge yourself. Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do you hunger after all righteousness? Now the next way that you pursue righteousness is that you seek it through the word. You know this verse? David says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. What are we talking about? We're talking about Christ's kingdom. We're talking about displacing the sin in our lives with righteousness. The way that you get out of sin is you get into God's word because what God's word does, it develops a desire for righteousness. Can't do anything less than that. And can you go to God's word and can you say, if you've done reading, you say, well, I'm sure glad I finished all the reading today because now I can go out and I can sin bigger and better Or worse, depending on how you put it, I can sin even more now that I've read God's Word. Who does that? You don't do that. God's Word does not lead you into sin. God's Word leads you away from sin. God's Word will produce in you righteousness. Now, you know, there's some people who who really don't want to go to the pastor for advice. They don't want to walk into his office because they know when they do, they already know exactly what the pastor's going to say. A pastor who's worth his salt... When someone comes into the office for a discussion about any problem in their life, the first place that I'm always going to turn a person is to the Word of God. What do you do with the Word of God? Some time ago, there was a woman who came into my office, and she was having some problems in her life. And she was, as most people would say, down on her luck. She was about to lose her job. She was going to be removed from her apartment. So she was having all kinds of difficulty. So she came in to talk with me, and I patiently listened to what she had to say. But naturally, I picked up on her statement when she said that she was a Christian. I'd never met her before, never seen her in church before. And so I put all of the other issues aside for just a moment, and then I began to talk to her about her soul. And I asked her about being a Christian, and I asked her about how she was living her life. I I asked her about her church life. I asked her about the Bible. And when I did, she became very indignant about it. She wasn't really concerned with anything that had to do with the Lord. She was looking for a way out of problems. You know, most churches are geared towards those issues. Churches want to deal with the family. They want to talk to you about divorce. They want to 
counsel you about alcohol and about drugs. And what they're doing is they're treating the symptoms without treating the disease. And there are many people that go to church to feel good, which is really nothing more than their opiate. Because going to church to make you feel good is like this. It's like going to the doctor with a broken leg and asking for a shot of morphine. It doesn't really help your broken leg. It might make you feel a little bit better, but it doesn't deal with the problem. You see, we can deal with all of these other issues, but we can't deal with it until sin is taken care of first. I'm not saying that all problems will go away if you just simply read the Bible. I don't say they'll go away if you just start going to church. What I am saying is none of those issues matter if the core issue is not dealt with. What does it matter if you clear up all of your marital issues? What does it matter if you take care of the family issues, the children's issues? What does it matter if you clear up drug issues and all of that, the alcohol? What does it matter if in the end you lose your soul and you go to hell? What does it matter? The Bible is teaching us to take care of righteousness first. Seek ye first God's righteousness. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now let me ask you, where where are you going to seek the kingdom of God? Where are you going to find it? How are you going to get there? How are you going to know it when you do get there? Well, the kingdom of God is found by going through his word. His word is the road map. This is what brings you righteousness because this is what kills the sin in your life. So again, the question is, how much do you hunger and thirst for it? Is this really your passion? Is this your desire? Now, thirdly, as you pursue righteousness, you seek it through work. Now, hear me out on this because I'm not going to shoot down the whole premise of my sermon by saying that you gain righteousness by work. That's been tried everywhere. And if you want to gain righteousness by work or think that you can, then I can send you to a dozen different churches that will accommodate you with a rule book that you can live by. What I'm saying here is that when you work for God, when you are in the service of God, it will increase your appetite for righteousness. If you've ever worked hard at manual labor, you know that at the end of the day, you're hungry. You work, you get hungry. You worked up an appetite. And it's the same way when you come to the service of the Lord. When you, when you get to work for the Lord, it will increase your appetite for righteousness. Maybe that's what's wrong with some of you. You're listless about church. You're struggling with sin that's in your life. And it's because you have not worked up an appetite for righteousness. You know, I've explained this before, that there are only so many positions in the church. There are only so many Sunday school teachers. There are only so many pioneer club workers. We have one treasurer. We have one financial secretary. We have one church clerk. Not everybody's going to get those jobs. If you ask people that are in charge of some of the ministries, they may tell you that they need some help in those things. But you don't have to come to me and say to me, give me a job so I can work up an appetite. It's like asking me to invent a field for you to sow your crop in. I don't have to invent a field for you to work in because there's already a field that's big enough for everybody to work in. Jesus said the field is the world. Now let's turn over just a few pages uh, to chapter 9 and verse number 35. And let's read this and let's pay attention to it very carefully. Matthew chapter 9 starting in verse number 35. Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he to his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. If you want to work up an appetite for righteousness, get busy in the field that's already out there. Start spreading the word about Christ. Spread some good news and see if it doesn't produce in you a desire in your personal life for holiness and righteousness. So we've dealt with the problem of righteousness. We see the pursuit of righteousness. We're all sinners. We have to have righteousness in order to be saved. We must have it to be sanctified. Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness, and so those who live in that kingdom must always be pursuing it. They must hunger and thirst for it as a person would who's desperately seeking food and water in order to sustain life. But there's a third message that we find in this beatitude, and this is really where I took the title of the message. This is the bountiful beatitude. Because those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will not be left begging. If you seek for all righteousness, you will receive righteousness. Now, thirdly, then, we look at the promise of righteousness. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Why are they blessed? Because they shall be filled. And do you see what we have here is really nothing less than the gospel of Christ. They shall be filled. God will give it to them. Nothing in this about self-help. They shall be filled. God's going to do this for them. You see, salvation is not what you do for God. Salvation is what God does for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. Some argue about that. They say, well, is he talking about faith? Is that the gift of God? Does he mean grace is... That the gift of God? Is he speaking about the whole package? Is he talking about salvation? Is that the gift of God? doesn't matter. doesn't matter. It's all the gift of God. The promise of righteousness, then, first of all, is a complete filling. That, that's the immediate aspect of righteousness. When we come to faith in Christ, we're immediately filled with righteousness. We're not talking about a process here. It's not something that takes a long time for you to procure. When you believe, you are immediately justified from your sins. And at that moment, you're as sure for heaven as if you'd already been there a thousand years. There are some preachers who will try to tell you, well, you can't know about this. I mean, you, you really can't know if you're saved. You have to wait until you die. And then if you've lived a good, good enough life and all the assessments have been properly made, then you'll find out whether you made it or not. You wait till you die to find out about it. You've waited too long. And what that actually is, is a denial of Christ's righteousness, and it's trusting in your own righteousness to get you to heaven. And that's against the teachings of these first three Beatitudes. Now listen to what uh, the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3. He says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man hath this hope that hath this hope in him, purifieth himself even as he is pure. There are many important 
points that are made in that statement, but I want you to notice three particularly here. The first one is that you are right now a child of God. When you trust Christ, you are right now a child of God, and that's a relationship that can never be broken. That's the hope that he speaks of in the last part of verse 3. And hope in that sense does not mean to be unsure. It means something that's unshakable. Then the second point here is that we're already pure. That's the immediate righteousness that we have in Christ. It's in the last phrase of the verse, even as he is pure. And then the third point is that every man that has this hope in him purifieth himself. And you know what that is? That's the Apostle John's way of saying that he hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And so we see here then there's a sense in which we're completely filled at the moment that we trust Christ. But then there is also a continual filling. He purifieth himself. Now, that's, it's a completed process, but it's also an ongoing process. That seems like a paradoxical thing, but what happens here is the Holy Spirit is working in us, delivering us from the power and the pollution of sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones also writes on this, and he says, we have to hunger and thirst for this deliverance from the power and the pollution. And if you hunger and thirst for it, you will get it. The Holy Spirit will come into you, and he will work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's the promise of righteousness. If you desire it, you're seeking after this like a man who's starving and thirsting, somebody who thinks about nothing else but how he can satisfy the very thing that he needs, which is food and nourishment. If you desire it in that way, you have the promise of God that's as sure as heaven itself, you'll be filled. Now, do you see what kingdom living is? If you're born again, can you say that there was ever a time in your life that you stopped desiring to be righteous? I mean, even when you know that you're in sin, when you are sure that you've sinned against God in some way, you're not content to stay that way. A person who's saved is one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness so that he's not content to live in his sin day after day. If you're that kind of a person, you haven't been saved. You'll never be satisfied to be in sin. So you're not someone who's trusted Christ to the saving of your soul if you don't desire this, if you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, what happens here is that the Sermon on the Mount is intended to identify the people of God. We're finding out who are the people of God. Some people are playing church. Some people are wearing the name Christian and they bandy it about but they don't fit these identifying characteristics of the kingdom. In our very first study here in chapter 5, I told you that the Sermon on the Mount will either identify you as a follower of Christ or it will drive you to despair. You will either go after him, you will seek him, or you will avoid him. You'll try to go around him, and you'll take that head-first plunge right into the pit of hell. Now, let that be the last thought today, the closing thought. Why must we hunger and thirst after righteousness? Well, here, either be filled with righteousness or face God's wrath. How shall a man be just with God? What can be done to make us right with God? You know, that is a burning question because if you answer that question incorrectly, it has horrible consequences. How can you be just with God? There's no hope. There's no hope without the righteousness of Christ. Blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness because he shall be filled, because he will escape the eternal wrath of an eternal God. The question for you is, are you in Christ's kingdom? Are you righteous? 
Have you been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ? Are you a person who's poor in spirit? Do you mourn because of your sins? Are you meek? Do you realize that only Jesus holds hope for your soul? No one but Jesus has any hope. Hunger and thirst for righteousness and you will be filled. That's the bountiful beatitude because you'll be filled with the brim, to the brim, with the very thing that you desire the most and the very thing that you need the most. That is the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. I pray that you might open the eyes of some person here about righteousness, what it means to be right with God. And may they come to you today in faith, realizing that Jesus is the only way that any person could ever be righteous in the sight of God. Jesus is our righteousness. Pray, Lord, that someone might trust him today. For Christians here who are living on the fringes, living on the outside, barely, it seems, in the kingdom of God, I pray, Lord, that you'd help them to understand that sin is a killer in our lives. Sin drives us to despair. Sin will ruin us. And the only way that we can be happy is to be a person who is always hungering and thirsting after the righteousness, the righteousness that's only found in Jesus Christ. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.